In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. St. Paul founded the church at Thessalonica, and the community there was primarily one of converted heathens. It was not a large conversion of Jews in that town, but the, the great bulk of the people there were former heathens, pagans. And so he's writing back to this particular audience, for he's gotten word from Timothy, whom he sent with Silas back to oversee, to be bishops. Bishop Timothy was over Thessalonica to govern that church and continue them in their formation in their way, for the church there was very young, only about a year old. So basically new converts. And this letter of St. Paul is written from Corinth back to Timothy and to this church about the year 52. One of the first documents, or one of the first letters of St. Paul that we have extant, and one of the first pieces of, uh, of the epistles in the New Testament, uh, overall, of, of any of them. Of course, the Gospels were written a bit earlier, except for John's, so this is a very early documentation, uh, an interesting lesson from St. Paul the Apostle back to a young church, who lives not only uh, as converted heathens, but still in the midst of heathenry. Thessalonica was a port town. You should know about port towns, right? Even in our day, they are usually worse for morals than what we experience here, perhaps in middle America. We think of ports like Amsterdam, New York, San Francisco, things like that. Um, anytime you have trade, you have all sorts of vices present. Not least of which are things of unchastity and avarice. And these are the two characteristic vices of heathenism that St. Paul is addressing to his young converts. And therefore the church puts before us today, so he is also addressing us to warn us of these two particular vices. He first recommends to them and to us that we must live more intensely. One of the reasons that the church puts this epistle in front of us in the beginning of Lent. This is the time to live our faith more intensely. We must do better than we are doing. We can always improve. And St. Paul gives this exhortation not simply from himself. He makes it very clear, I exhort you in the Lord. In the Lord you are to take this teaching. This is the exhortation, the way we're supposed to take it. That we are supposed to take this advice, this lesson, in that living union which leads us to Christ, which binds us to Christ, and thus to one another. Because these two type of vices are particularly social, are they not? They pretend, uh, tend toward others, unchastity and avarice. And so St. Paul is teaching and exhorting them in the Lord, but he's also pointing out that he's teaching through the Lord. He is commissioned by Christ himself, a great apostle. He has authority from God, and therefore must be listened to and obeyed, not just by Thessalonians, but by you and me. He taught the Thessalonians, when he founded that church, the whole dogmatic and moral course. 
And now he's exhorting them to stay on, to stay on the right path, and to intensify it. Why? Because the teaching he left them, both dogmatically and morally, is Christ's. It is Christ's teaching and it is Christ's will that he is communicating to them and to us. The term saints is used frequently, especially by St. Paul in the New Testament. This is how the Christians would refer to one another, which is, I suppose you could say it's a bit prideful, I suppose, the way our common understanding of, of saints, we reserve that term nowadays, usually to those who are canonized, uh, knowing that they are in heaven and, and have a state of perfection that we all hope to and aspire to. But sometimes it's important for us to remember that we are saints. It is a reminder that that's the way we're supposed to be behaving. That's what we're on about, is to actually to live a life so that we might go to heaven and be with the blessed forever. So, by referring to the other Christians as saints, and this is the mentality that we're supposed to have, St. Paul says that your holiness ought to be your characteristic as a Christian. What distinguishes you is that level of sanctity, that holiness, so that you are worthy to be called a saint, a living saint. And this is why he emphasizes these two distinguishing things. Chastity and generosity. He flips them, warning against unchastity and avarice. Because these two things particularly do not appeal to heathens in the first century, in the year 52, nor in our own time. It's another reason why I think the church puts this epistle in front of us at Lent, because in our own day and age, in our own atmosphere, these two vices are still very prominent. And thus we must attack them with all vigor. We must shake off the tendencies of unchastity and avarice, because they only drag us down and they do not make us worthy to be called saints. There is in the fourth verse of the epistle, the chapter that we are under looking at this morning, where he says, no fornication. And then he goes on to say, in the Vulgate it is a translation of, of keeping one's vessel pure for sanctification and honor. That is true. St. Paul's literal point here is talking about keeping ourselves pure. What is purity? Ultimately, it is a single-heartedness to love God above all else. It's not simply white-knuckling against our libido. It is deeper than that. It is more beautiful than that. Real chastity, real purity focuses on God first and orders everything to that single-heartedness, that single-mindedness to love God above all things, which is the first of the Great Commandments. And it orders us to obey the second of the Great Commandments, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to not looking upon them as objects, to not seeking our own appetites above God's law. It is being properly ordered. Because remember, this whole teaching, the exhortation against these two vices, is under the will of God, our sanctification. 
And that should be our project in general, but particularly for Lent. We are now more intensely concerned about our sanctification, and it starts with that single-heartedness, that single-mindedness of purity and chastity. No matter our state in life, and thus we must be concerned about our own and how we conduct ourselves with regard to others, never leading them to unchastity or being a temptation for them. But a word about this fourth verse. In the Greek, it doesn't really bear out the translation we have. In the Greek, it's, it's much more pointed about honoring one's wife. I think this is a better way of understanding what St. Paul is getting at. It's not simply avoiding sin, right? especially if we understand the context in which St. Paul is exhorting us in the deeper sense of working out our sanctification, always going deeper, living Christ's law more fully, not simply avoiding sin, but fulfilling our duty with a great amount of attention and love for God. This is why I think it's so important. I want to draw your attention to the way the Greek has it. Honor thy wife. The first way is by keeping pure before marriage. Those of you who are not yet married, to have that spouse, that future spouse in mind, and behave appropriately to that spouse's dignity. Those of you who are married, remember that marriage is the, the, the vocation by which you are sanctified. So working out your sanctification is working out the duty of that sacrament. Honor thy wife. Remember, two become one flesh. So husbands are to look upon their wives as another self in a more profound way than we are all supposed to do by practicing charity. Right? This is keeping one's vessel unto sanctification and honor. Remembering that not only are we each ourselves focusing on the idea that I am a temple of the Holy Ghost and should do nothing to despoil that temple in thought, word, or deed, but in particularly, in particular, one's wife is also a temple of the Holy Ghost. She is a daughter of Mary. She has a tremendous dignity, not only naturally because she is the bearer of life, but because, especially in the sacrament, she has been raised to a tremendous dignity. And it is honoring that dignity in behavior, not only towards her, but always towards oneself, to stay pure, to stay chaste, to stay magnanimous, to stay kind, to stay truly charitable, working out the salvation. This is honoring one's wife, and this is God's will for husbands. To think any differently is contrary to the will of God, as is made clear in the context of this epistle. For God, this is your for God's will for you is your sanctification. On the flip side, we can because we understand the mutuality, the reciprocity of the marriage bond. There's also an honoring of women 
to their husbands, of course. We never forget that it's a mutual relationship. Working out the sanctification of each, perfecting that interior disposition of each in a particular way. Honor thy wife. So it refers, yes, true, to impurity, keeping that single heartedness for God, but there is more. The other vice, avarice. We must always make sure that the ways of acquiring our wealth, for those of us who live in the world, is always just. Always with due respect to our brethren, whether they are our co-religionists or not. Remembering that there is a universal destiny of all goods. We do not have absolute dominion over material things. We have a right to private property, especially as regards to the maintenance of the family. But there is a universal destination of goods, which must be respected and kept in mind. Particularly those who are invested with authority and power of determining policy of the body politic. Worldliness, selfishness, forgetfulness of God, harshness and indifference to the poor must be far from each of us, or we are not worthy to be called saints or even Christian. I remind you, as what I said earlier, Thessalonica was an important trade city, a port city. And so... There was all sorts of opportunities for underhanded business dealings, as there is today, especially when the complexity of everything. It is very difficult to navigate our way, so we must do it carefully and prayerfully, so that we are always just in our dealings. Always erring on the side of magnanimity, of charity, of generosity. St. Thomas says that somewhere in the Summa, about giving alms to the poor, which is Lent, and so that should be one of the four things of our mind. In giving alms to the poor, we shouldn't count so much of what we think they might do with our gift, because that is between them and the judgment of God if they misuse our generosity. It behooves us to always be charitable. It behooves us to be generous. And God will reward us for that. And that is how we all work out our salvation in charity and generosity. St. Paul points out these two vices from which flow many others. But he also points out that the worst vices of the heathens are always traced back to the ignorance of God. Woe to you and me if you and I are ignorant of God. If we do not study if we do not pray, if we do not try to get to know God so that we might do His will. For that is our purpose, to know God, to love God, and to serve God in this life so that we might be happy with Him forever in heaven. This is our duty. This is for which we were made. Why? Why must we avoid these vices of unchastity and avarice? Why must we work out our salvation? First of all, for the fear of God's judgment. 
Sometimes that's an important factor to remind ourselves. God will judge us, and we must give an accounting. But more importantly, more fundamentally, more positively, it is our holiness. God wants us to have a greater portion of happiness. And this is the way we achieve it. By cultivating purity and chastity and that single-heartedness of love of God. By using all the means of our life, all of our material possessions, for the sake of God, not for ourselves. If we live in this way, then we will be worthily called Christians, and perhaps rightly called saints. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.